0: Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Oreb of the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Ivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you, and that it's I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your father sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you'll say to the Israelites. I am as sent me to you. Then we go into chapter four. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe That the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hands into the cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs... Or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant, I am slow speech and tall. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who made them deaf or moot? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burnt against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he'll be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you to speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth, and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand, so that you can perform the signs with it.
1: I'm going to pray for us. Father God, please would you give us ears to listen to your word, give us minds to understand it, a heart to embrace it, a will to live it out. Please send your Holy Spirit among us, we pray, in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, much of the news these past few days has rightly been dominated, hasn't it, by the death of Her Majesty. After a 70 year reign, we're in a new era. And that's quite an unsettling place to be. It raises all kinds of questions where previously we didn't need to ask those questions because we know, we're certain. A few times you might have heard people on TV say things about the Queen, about her, how solid she has been. Even when she was uh, ill on, on Thursday afternoon, I think it was Nicholas Witchell I heard on the news saying, she is the one constant in an ever-changing world and it's true she was remarkably steadfast remarkably faithful in her duties for decades but even she would have disputed that idea that she is the one constant thing only God is that and so only God can be our comfort be our guide when everything around us shifts So tonight, as we carry on our new series in the book of Exodus, it's fitting that we're focusing on the character of God. He is the only constant in an ever-changing world. He is the one that kings and queens can rely upon. He is the one that we all need to put our trust in, the one who not only reigns but who rescues. And that's what we see in the first 10 verses of chapter 3. We see the Holy God who promises to rescue. The Holy God promises to rescue. So far in the story, we've been introduced to the Israelites, a people group enslaved in Egypt. And we've been introduced to Moses, one of those Israelites whose life God saved as a baby. What's happening now in this section is we're being introduced to the main character, which is not Moses, but God. God is the one we're meeting here. Moses had killed a man in Egypt and gone on the run from the law. He's got married. He's had children for the past 40 years. He's been living with his new family in Midian, which is neither in Egypt nor in the Promised Land. He's had 40 years in the wilderness a good practice, I imagine, for what's coming later. Anyway, there he is looking after the sheep as he has been for decades now when he sees something odd. Chapter 3, verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Now, in desert country, it wouldn't be that uncommon for a sort of bit of scrubby bush to catch fire in the heat. But this is different. As verse 2 goes on, Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. I mean, that is strange, isn't it? You've got a big bonfire, but you can see the stuff being burned. It's not turning black. It's not turning into charcoal. We call it the burning bush, don't we? But that's exactly what it wasn't, really. It wasn't burning. It was just fire. And so Moses thinks, this is weird. I'm going to go and take a closer look. And as soon as he goes to take that look, verse 4, God called out to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. God warns him in verse 5, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place you're standing is holy ground. This isn't just about fire safety. You must stay a certain distance away from the thing. No, this is about holiness. Holiness is specialness, differentness. A minute ago this was just an ordinary hill and yet now God is here and so it is holy, it is set apart. You see God introducing himself and the first thing Moses needs to know is that he's dealing with a holy God. Fire is such a brilliant picture of holiness. When something's on fire it is so different from that same thing not on fire. It is Beautiful. You can spend hours, can't you, staring into a fire on a cold night. And yet you can't quite look at it because it is so radiant and bright. Fire draws you in. You want to huddle close. You want to enjoy its warmth. And yet you can't get too close because it's dangerous. You need to respect it. That is what God is like in his holiness. Beautiful, glorious, terrifying. Moses needs to keep his distance Moses needs to take his shoes off as a mark of respect and once he knows who it is who's speaking to him verse 6 says Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God if we were to see God we would do exactly the same thing later on in Exodus we're told that no one can see God's face and live so of course he looks away I wonder if we realise who we're dealing with when we come to worship God. As we'll see in a minute, God is gracious. He is amazingly gracious to us in Jesus, but he is still blisteringly holy. We must take him seriously. Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29 says this to Christians. Let us be thankful And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is still the God who we worship today. Now, wonderfully, this holy God goes on, and what he says is that he promises to rescue. In verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. And wonderful. We saw similar things last week, didn't we? That he sees, he hears, he cares. Verse 8, he says, I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land, into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. We hear their cries have gone up. And so God has come down He is going to rescue them. More than just bringing them out of trouble, he's going to bring them into amazing blessing, a land of their own, a land oozing with good things, dripping with fruitfulness and provision, just as he promised Abraham all those centuries before. This holy God promising to rescue and promising to keep his promises to rescue and then we get the shock in verse 10, which was probably even more of a shock for Moses, I imagine. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. So what? You're sending me? I was on board up until that point. I mean, it sounds amazing, doesn't it? That God is planning to rescue. He's keeping all his promises. They're in this nightmare situation and God says, no, I'm going to do something about it. So go and do it, Moses. Wow, this is why God had rescued Moses all those years before, so that he could go and rescue everybody else. God would rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt to the promised land through Moses. And that would be a picture for us of the way that God rescues us from slavery to sin to bring us to heaven through Jesus. Moses would be the leader for that brief moment. Jesus would be the ultimate rescuer, much more powerful, much more glorious, bringing about an even better rescue and much more willing than Moses as well. What we get the rest of the passage is a series of objections. We sort of had the gist of the plan. This is what I'm going to do. I promise to rescue you and I'm going to use you to do it. And the rest of the passage is Moses saying, Hmm, <laughs> I don't know about that. Reason after reason why this can't possibly work. And each time the answer to his objections is God. But what about this? God. What about that? God. In all of his doubts, God is what Moses needs to know. And that's the same that's true of us. And we've got all kinds of questions, all kinds of doubts, fears worries and the answer to them is God his character his nature his promises his plans so let's get to know God better as he introduces himself to Moses and to us Moses first objection it's probably his best objection when he says who am I who am I verse 11 but Moses said to God Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? You want me to rescue them? I'm nobody. Pharaoh is a powerful man, freeing slaves. That's no mean feat. Who am I to do all of that? It's a good question. To which the answer is, God is with you. It's a strange reply, isn't it? He doesn't say, who am I? Well, here's who you are. No, he says, who am I? And God says in verse 12, I will be with you. It's as if God is saying, it doesn't matter who you are. What matters is who is on your side. The holy God of unapproachable fire is with you. So it may be completely right to be overawed by the scale of the task. But don't forget the scale of your God. I will be with you, says God and with God with us, well what can't we do? Very soon we're going to have the queen's funeral. A few months later we're going to have the king's coronation. Not just anybody can attend that sort of thing. Anybody can go and gather with the plebs outside, but only the select few get to be there in the actual ceremony. Imagine you try and plonk yourself down on the front row I imagine one of the questions that will be asked of you is, who are you? (laughs) Who are you to think that you can just come in here like this? Who are you to just sit down there like that? What on earth makes you think you can do that? Who are you? And there's no answer to it unless perhaps the king, King Charles steps over and says, he's with me or I'm with him in ourselves we cannot do it but if he's with us well then that's different isn't it we can't do what God requires we can't be who we should be we can't go and stand before a king and go and demand something like Moses being told to do but if God is with us well that's very different nowadays if somebody said to you Who am I to take on this role or that role or the other? We would leap in, wouldn't we, to affirm them. Oh, nonsense, you're amazing, you can do anything. Just believe in yourself. That's not what God says, is it? When Moses says, I can't, who, who am I to do this? He says, I will be with you, believe in me. The answer to our fears is not inside us. It is outside us. It is beside us, because God is with us. And we see this most clearly in Jesus, don't we? The one who is Emmanuel, God with us. The one who comes down to rescue. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, the disciples and us are given a job to do, a bit like Moses was. We're told to go with a message, go to the nations and tell them, go and make them disciples. Who are we to do that? And Jesus' answer is the same. He says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. God is with us. What a massive comfort that should be to us all. Verse 12, God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. It's a weird choice of a sign, isn't it? You sort of want a sign now to tell me that I can trust you. But what God is saying is, here's how you know this is true. It will actually happen. There's a lot of people saying a lot of things. This is going to happen. The proof I will rescue my people is that I will rescue my people. And one day soon, you're going to be back here again on this very mountain. The Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. It's just a different name. Only this time you're not going to be on your own. All the Israelites will be with you free and worshipping me. Which is what it means to be truly free. All of this will happen and none of it is going to have anything to do with who Moses is. It will be because God is with him. But that leads to another objection. Who are you? God is with me. Excellent. Who's God when he's at home? Verse 13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? It's always embarrassing not to know somebody's name, isn't it? Because knowing their name is so tied up with knowing who they are. So if I point to someone and go, oh, look, there's my friend. And you say, who? And you go, my friend. What's their name? I've no idea. You'd be right in thinking that we're probably not very close. To know someone's name is to know them. And so Moses says to God, who are you? And the answer, God is who he is. God is who he is. Verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. That's a mind-boggling answer, isn't it? What's your name? I am who I am. God is who he is. That is to say, he is the one and only. He is unique. Completely self-sufficient. Eternal ultimate. He is the God who simply is. The tense here is deliberately unclear. Is it past tense, present tense, future tense? He's kind of in one thing saying, I am who I am. I have been who I have always been, and I will be who I will always be. That is who God is. Today, we like to define God for ourselves. We hear people say, oh, I like to think of God as a bit like it doesn't matter how you like to think about it. God is who he is. He is who he tells us he is. I am who I am. Tell the Israelites, I am has sent you. The word I am is the name Yahweh. I don't know if we think about the fact that God has a name. He is a personal God and he has a personal name. Yahweh. It comes over 6,500 times in the Bible. So you, you might be forgiven saying, well, why don't we read it more often then? Well, it's a funny one. Out of respect for that name, Jewish people used to not say it. It's much easier not to take God's name in vain if you just don't say it at all. So instead, when reading it, they wouldn't say Yahweh, they'd say Adonai, which is a Hebrew word for Lord. And then they would start writing that. I and mean, there's a whole way in which you get from that to Jehovah and all that kind of thing. We can talk about that after if you want. But translators of the Bible into English have basically done the same thing. Instead of writing the word Yahweh, they've written the word Lord in capital letters. So whenever you see that, uh, the Lord in capital letters, that is translating the name Yahweh. I am, who I am. Which is why Jesus got into so much trouble. In John 8, when they say to you, Who are you? (laughs) Who are you? And he says, Before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus is I am. The God who's speaking here. Jesus doesn't show up for the first time in the New Testament. (laughs) Here he is, right here. He is who he is. But if God is who he is, that still does beg the question who is he? doesn't it? Okay, you you are who you are. Okay, but what, what sort of, I don't even know how to ask the question. What is that? What is you? What are you? Who are you? What are you like? I wonder how you'd answer that question. Who actually is God? Well, on top of telling us his name, God answers that question, who are you, by telling us about himself and who he is and what he does. He says in verse 16 and 17, go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a great description, isn't it? Who is God? Well, here's his name, and here's what he's promised to do. He is the God who rescues people. That's the best way God can think of, to explain who he is, is to tell us what he does. He rescues. And it's the same today. Which, Again, of course it is. He's the God who is and always will be the same. The best way to explain who God is is to talk about how he rescues us. Not in the Exodus, but on the cross. Yahweh is the God who, who saves. And so he lays out the plan for Moses. Here's what you're going to say to the elders, the leaders of the people. Here's what you're going to go and say to Pharaoh. The elders, they're going to believe you. Pharaoh is not. Verse 19, chapter 3, verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. God will rescue them, whatever the king says, because he is who he is, and no one can stop him. And what's more, like the proverbial game show host, he's not going to let them go away empty-handed. Verse 22, Every woman is to ask her neighbor for, and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. The Israelites are slaves. They have got nothing. And yet God is going to bless them beyond their wildest dreams. All they've got to do is turn to the people who oppressed them and ask them, and for some reason, their slave drivers are just going to hand it all over. God's people are not going to sneak out in rags. They're going to be sent on their way, covered head to toe in gold. Isn't this just extravagant, outrageous blessing? Who are you, Lord? This is who I am. I am the promise-making, promise-keeping, slave-rescuing, lavishly blessing God, who is who he is. Praise the Lord, who blesses us with every spiritual blessing. In Christ, doesn't just sneak out in rags. Just gives us everything that we need in Christ. Now that ought to satisfy Moses, wouldn't it? Not should say sort of fair enough. I'll be on the first donkey to Egypt. I'll get on it straight away. But no, he's got another objection. They might not listen. They might not listen. Verse chapter four, verse one. Moses answered. What if they do not believe me? Or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you. I mean, it just sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? They might not listen to me. What do I do then? Now, here's the problem. God's already told Moses in chapter 3, verse 18, the elders of Israel will listen to you. So Moses is doubting here. He's picking holes in God's plan. He's, he's, he's not sure it's going to work. But God's really gracious and he reassures him God is mighty. God is mighty. The people will listen because God is mighty. Just like we heard Pharaoh won't let them go unless a mighty hand compels him. Well, God here gives a little glimpse of how mighty he is. He kind of flexes his muscles, if you like. So verse 3, he gets Moses to chuck his walking stick on the ground. And suddenly, boom, the walking stick slithers off. It's a snake. Moses runs away. Sticks don't normally do that. That's terrifying. Snakes are scary. They're dangerous. In the Bible, the serpent is the sign of Satan, God's great enemy. And so what the Lord asked Moses to do is, is pretty massive. Go reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Imagine going to you know, one of those zoos where you get to touch the animals and there's this, the kind of snake where if it's out, people run away. And they say, will just grab it by the tail, would you? No way. God's old enemy, the one who ruined everything, go grab it, show it who's boss. That was a real act of faith to do that. But when he does it, when Moses does it, the snake becomes a staff again. And God is saying they will listen. Because this sign proves God is mighty to rule over his enemies. God is mighty. Then God gives another sign. Verse 6, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses pops his hand in his inside pocket. Goodness knows what might be in there after the snake thing. Oh, no, there's nothing in there. That's okay. He takes his hand out. Oh, my goodness me. He's now leprous on his hand. He's turned white as snow. Horrible, horrible skin disease from nowhere. God says, put it back in your cloak again. Again, the fear of that. Is there going to be a hand to pull out again? But yeah, he puts his hand in, takes it out, and it's restored exactly as it was before. Again, it's another sign that God is mighty. He's got power. He has power to bring disaster. And he has power to heal and cleanse people. And then there's a third sign, verse 9. It says, but if they do not believe to these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. And the water turning into blood was the first of the famous plagues of Egypt which we'll look at very soon and in a way all three of these signs kind of are the plagues in a nutshell showing God's mighty power over creatures diseases and nature that's all 10 of the plagues come under one of those categories and he's saying that on those who do not believe on those who will not obey God he will pour out his judgment God is mighty and is not to be trifled with These displays of power, they are designed to make people sit up and pay attention. That's why they're called wonders, chapter 3, verse 20, chapter 4, verse 21. These are wonders. They're meant to take our breath away. People sometimes act as though miracles or wonders happen all the time in the Bible. If, oh, the Bible's just a book of wonders and miracles and stuff, it actually doesn't happen very often. This is arguably the first one in the Bible. You get a cluster of wonders around the Exodus, and then nothing for centuries. And then you get another little cluster of signs and wonders around Elijah, and then you get nothing for ages. And then you get another explosion of wonders in the life of Jesus. These are very significant moments, and those things were not just tricks for us to sort of gawp at, to just look at the thing you can see. They were there to make us listen to the message. These signs and wonders, the signs and wonders of Jesus, they're there, so we will see oh, he is the one I'm supposed to follow who's going to set me free. Just like Moses' miracles said to them listen to this man, the God he's talking about really is mighty, he really will rescue. Moses still isn't convinced. <laughs> His final objection I can't do it. I can't, I can't do it. Chapter 4, verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past, nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. I can't do it. I can barely string two words together. I've, I've never been an up-the-front person. I'm getting tongue-tied talking to you now, Lord. I, just, I can't do this. I cannot do it. The response is clear. God will help you. God will help you. Verse 11 and 12, the Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. It's good, isn't it? Yet again, the answer to the doubt is God and his character. Do you really think that God is the kind of God who throws us in the deep end and leaves us to drown? No, he helps us. I'm not debating that he throws us in the deep end, (laughs) but he helps us. Moses thinks he cannot do it, and maybe, in a way, he couldn't. Maybe he did struggle. Some people think that he had a stutter or a stammer. Other people focus on that he was just had no confidence. Whatever it was, Moses is not a natural public speaker, and yet what he's told is, God made your mouth, and God made their ears, and so God can use one of those to reach the other one of those. God will help you. God can do it. You might not be very good at speaking, but God is. He calls us to speak for him. And this is an encouragement to us. It may be that we are out of our comfort zones. But the maker of our mouths and their ears is able to make himself known. He will help us. And so with no other excuses left, Moses tells the truth in verse 13. Pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. It is honest at least, isn't it? Please don't make me do this. I can't do I really don't want to do this. How often that's the real reason behind our objections. Like, well, there's this, there's that. No, it's no. No, thank you. Please, I don't want to. And you can see God's angry in verse 14. He talks about his anger burning. We've already seen God is a fire. This is a dangerous thing. Moses ought to be trusting him by now. Perhaps God's going to say, fine, I'll go find someone who actually wants the job. But no, God is so gracious. He helps him. Despite his anger, he provides for Moses' weakness. He will send somebody else alongside Moses. <laughs> Not instead of him, he suggests his brother. Your brother, Aaron, he's a good speaker, isn't he? He can do all the talking. In chapter, uh, sorry, verse 15. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you. And it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. Isn't that kind of God? Isn't that gracious? God will speak to Moses. Moses will pass it on to Aaron. Aaron will go and tell the people. it will be a kind of go-between. Just like how Aaron would go on to be the first priest. Again, a wonderful picture of God as he stands between us and God, to reveal God to us and bring us to him. Moses can't do it, but God will help him. We can't do it, but God can. And so like Moses, we've got to go and obey his call on our lives. We see time and again lots of objections. The answer to all of them is God. The unchanging character of God, the faithful I am, the one constant in an ever-changing world. We need to bow before him this evening, don't we? We need to worship him. We need to believe him, believe his promises of rescue. And not keep bringing up objections to him why his plans of rescue couldn't possibly work. As Chapter 4 ends... All these things begin to come true. Moses does go. He does go back to Egypt. And then listen to this from verse 29, chapter 4, verse 29. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Praise God that he cares about us, that he's come down to save us in Christ. Is that your reaction? When I've heard that he was concerned about me, I've bowed down and worshipped the God who's mighty, the God who's with us, who will help us, who is who he is, who rescues Let's pray. Great Father in heaven, the Holy One, the Mighty One, the Only One, we praise you this evening. Give us confidence in you. Keep our trust, keep our focus on you. Rescue us through Jesus, we pray. You have promised to do that and so we know that you will. Amen.